There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. We're in for a fascinating conversation today with one of the nation's leading experts on trauma, disruptive change, psychological recovery, post-traumatic growth, and close relationships. Our guest today is Dr. Shauna Springer. Shauna Springer is a trusted doctor to our nation's veterans, focusing on career transition and suicide prevention. Shauna Springer, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. Thanks for being here today. Doc Springer is a Harvard graduate and the chief psychologist at Stella, the nation's fastest growing network of post-traumatic stress treatment centers. She co-hosts a weekly national disseminated podcast called Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. She co-authored the best-selling book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration. And she has a new book titled Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. That has received glowing reviews. Doc Springer has been featured on numerous networks and many publications, including NPR, CNN, Vice TV, NBC, CBS Radio, Business Insider, U.S. News and World Report, Psychology Today, and Forbes Magazine. Doc, you're a champion of the power of connection. What is the power of connection and how powerful is it? Well, Chris, in my work with people over the last two decades of uh, work in the field of psychology, what I've come to see is that connection is the thing that has a power that's greater than despair. Um, that there are many of us who at times in our lives might not be willing to live for ourselves, but we may be willing to live for those that we love and the values we hold sacred. Um, and so the same principle, you know, is really what drives my work. Um, if this project and all of what I do was solely about me and my work and my expertise, um, I just wouldn't have anywhere near the energy that I have and the drive that I have to see these insights get out. Um, I'd actually be really uncomfortable, frankly, Chris. So, you know, for, for many years, um, I worked as a, a silent professional in my way, creating these safe spaces, building this um, unique type of trust that I've had with those I serve, um, and really just walking with them in the privacy of those really safe and sacred spaces. Um, and so writing a book and, and becoming more of a public voice of here's what veterans uh, really are saying, here's what they really need, has been uncomfortable for me um, to the point where I've had to talk to some of the people in my closest circles, including a friend of mine named Mike Ergo and I said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable about the promotional aspect of writing a book. And, you know, can you help me with that? And what he said really changed everything for me. He said, you know, Shauna, this really isn't about you. It's never been about you. So if you can adjust your understanding. Um, the other thing that he said was, with all the love in my heart, <laughs> build a bridge in your mind and do you see that bridge? And I said, yes. And he said, well, now get the F over it. <laughs> so um, it kind of like pushed me out of that space of where I was comfortable. And now I fully understand that I need to be bold in asking for the help and support to get these insights out there because I didn't choose this path, but it was chosen for me to do this work. And it's not about me. You mentioned being bold and reaching out for support. We're going to get to that in a minute, but it's interesting to hear you use those words uh, in addition to those that you also help. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the motivation for this whole project really was actually not mine. The last book I wrote, one of my patients actually put me up to it. Um, so he, at the end of our, our time, I had been at the VA for eight years. He said, I want you to make me a promise. And that always is kind of a compelling, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, I want you to write a book about all of the insights that you've learned from all the patients that you've seen 
uh, because we've shared with you. We've been vulnerable with you. And so I want you to pull no punches and call it like it is and be brave. And this is the best way to honor the connection that we have with you. And so writing the book Warrior wasn't even really my idea. That's fantastic. So is that need to connect something that's been hardwired into our DNA over millions of years, or is it just something that's developed in the past you know, couple of hundred, couple of centuries? Well, one of the things I've learned about trust and holding trust is if you don't know something, you say it. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I think an evolutionary biologist probably has a better answer than I do on that question. But I do know this. I know that when we connect, we survive. And I know that we need that connection in order to live a life that feels worth it. Um, and that when people get isolated and they can be around people and still be totally isolated in their minds, if there's a split between what they're projecting and what they're actually feeling. And sadly, that's true for so many of us. So you know, in Warrior, I talk about the concept of the boy of Sparta who had the fox in his gut. And so he had stolen a fox, put it inside his cloak, and the fox got hungry and started eating his stomach. And because of Spartan culture, he was very stoic and didn't say a word. And then suddenly, without a cry of pain, he dropped over dead. And so I think there are so many people, you know, this is not the first time anybody said this, that live lives of quiet despair. And they, they don't have a place to talk about what's going on. And so you can be surrounded by people and look entirely, you know, high performing and functional, like some of the people we've lost in our society. Like, you know, I was part of the response when, when Anthony Bourdain, I did some interviews around Kate Spade, and Anthony Bourdain's death. Uh, we lost Robin Williams. We've lost other people that look larger than life. And have all of the things that you think you'd want, but they're suffering on the inside. And so addressing that split is part of the work that a healer does. You and I share a common cause in working to reduce the epidemic of active duty military personnel and veterans dying by suicide. I'm fascinated by your book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. What was your motivation for writing Warrior and what are some of the important takeaways? Okay, well, yeah, like I said, um, it was a former patient of mine uh, who had retired from 5th Special Forces that put me up to it. And he also added some accountability, like warriors are wont to do. So he said, um, you know, you've made this promise to me, and I know that you keep your promises, so I'm going to check up on you. And in a year, he surely did. <laughs> so did you write that book yet? Where are you at? Um, and I, I welcomed you know that accountability because once I had agreed it really did take on a life of its own and I will say this about it um, it was such a wonderful outlet for me to express the grief that I felt from losing connection with hundreds of people I had served for eight years at the VA so in graduate school you know they always uh, would talk about any graduate school in psychology talks about you know clinical detachment um, and the relationship is not about the healer, and that's true, and you have to have, you know, appropriate boundaries, but if your heart is in the work, when you have to terminate relationships, therapeutic relationships that were never about you, but people you've been invested in and genuinely cared about, it's hard, and there's a process that you go through that involves grief, and so one of the things I've really learned about grief is that you can carry that um, attachment forward and you can honor it as you move on the values that drive you. So warrior became writing. This became my way of, of grieving and expressing what I learned and honoring. And it, it ended up being such a gift to me that he challenged me to do that um, because it helped organize all of my thinking um, and really hopefully share something that's not going to just benefit the warfighter community and first responders, but, but Americans who are experiencing levels of trauma that are similar to what our warfighter community has felt for many years. You've written that we need to rethink suicide. What do you mean by that? 
Oh, we could do a whole podcast on that, Chris. Um, you know, it goes to some of what I said, that the way that people look on the outside is often very different from how they feel on the inside. I'm not the first person to say that. Um, but one thing about warriors and first responders in particular is that they inhabit a split world. And so there's the world that we all live in and that we all see. And then there's the world that they see of the evils that man is capable of and the, the traumas that they're exposed to. Um, and to some degree in my role as a doc, I have a split world that I inhabit as well. There's the things that people project, you know, both in my private practice with civilians, uh, successful, affluent, accomplished people would come into my office and say, I think about suicide all the time. So I'm under no illusion that these thoughts are uncommon. I think one of the big shifts about rethinking suicide is to understand that these thoughts are common. And it's in fact arrogant for us to think that we'll never have struggles. Um, and that world can't be divided into people who have had these thoughts and people who have not. So there are so many warriors that um, when they trust me, they say, I I've had times where I've really had that thought. And that makes perfect sense to me. Warriors are people that inhabit a split world and they deal in death and dying as part of their job. So to have the thoughts is very common. And being able to offer them a safe place to really think through uh, the stakes in that mental warfare and how they can hold their ground when, not if, but when we're confronted with mental warfare is a big part of my work. And how have stressor events like the global pandemic right now affected the mental health of our veterans? Well, it's interesting, Chris, because it kind of goes in two directions with that. So what I've seen is that people are either doing really well right now, the warfighter community that, you know, I serve, or they're really struggling. And that makes total sense to me because on the one hand, uh, some people are saying to me, the ones that are doing really well, are saying, you know, it's interesting, I felt like a stranger in a strange land before, like a ghost in this culture that had totally different values and didn't get it. And now I feel less alien in society because I feel like people in society are finally starting to get it. They're finally starting to understand no matter how strong you think you are, no matter how brave you think you are, that trauma exposure has an impact, has a dramatic and deep impact on all of us uh, when we are faced with it. And so they can feel um, more like everybody else in a way that's healthy. So there's some people doing really well. They say, well, you know, I've been through worse and I know what I'm capable of. I've got my tribe to support me um, and I'll get through this. There are other people for whom this is um, echoing past traumas. So just thinking about the concept of, you know, there's this invisible enemy, you know, and thinking about war zone deployments, you don't always know enemy from friend. you know, there's this invisible threat you have to be hyper vigilant all the time. There's life or death stakes. Uh, people you love could be infected or killed by an IED, whatever. People you love, you could lose them in sudden traumatic ways that you're not prepared for. Um, your grief gets cut off when you lose people that you love, whether due to COVID or whether due to, you know, in the combat zone, when they're evacuated out after. Um, after being killed. So there are all of these things that even bunkering in place and, you know, having to kind of stay home and be sort of distant and distrustful of people because they could, you know, be in infection vectors. These are all things that are mirroring past traumas. And if I had to speculate or what I've observed is that the differentiator between those two groups, those that are thriving and those that are really not doing well right now, is that the people in the first category that are doing well have come through past experiences and developed a sense of mastery. Like, I know what I'm capable of. And I know that I've been through worse. And I know I can get through this. And I know who I can depend on. Whereas other people have come out of past traumas and it's increased their sense of um, helplessness and just having to, um, you know, take trauma on without the shield of um, developing a sense of mastery, if that makes sense. No, nope, total. Thank you. 
you know, and it's obvious that veterans have different stressors than civilians. Survivor guilt, for instance. Taking yeah. someone else's life, even when it's an enemy combatant, would be another heavy burden. Is psychiatric, psychiatric treatment different for veterans? Well, it's interesting because taking someone else's life would be a heavy burden sometimes, but not always. Um, you know, warriors are trained for battle. And we have a conception, I think, that the things that warriors see and do in war or the act of taking life is the central trauma that we need to focus on. And I haven't observed that to be true. Um, for so many of the people I've served, it's not been that. It's been, you know, as you said, survivor guilt, um, other kinds of moral injuries, uh, rejection upon entering treatment settings by docs that they had hoped they could open up to and they feel, you know, then don't really understand them um, and disconnection from civilians they need to be close to, to thrive after the military or that they used to be close to, uh, broken relationships in transition. So it's been so many other things really. And to answer your question, is psychiatric treatment different for veterans? I think it should be. I think the job of a psychologist is to understand um, human behavior. And so you think about who is this person who's in front of me because we have, you know, all have individual differences, but then there's group differences as well. And as you said, uh, cultural differences, warriors and, and first responders and other groups often have ways of seeing the world and understanding it in sets of values that, that do set them apart. And so failing to understand that and applying kind of the same practice that we would apply to the civilian population will not land for warriors. Um, you know, another thing I, I thought, you know, this story in the book, Warrior, came to me as, as an example of how we often project our own experiences into others inappropriately. We think our own experience reflects others' experiences. When I was at the VA, there was a, a veteran who attempted um, suicide in the clinic uh, just across the hall from my office. And so I heard these strange noises and a couple of my colleagues, really good people were in there trying to, you know, hold this veteran up and cut this veteran down. It was an attempted hanging. And um, I came in there with them and the three of us, you know, intervened and, and stopped that suicide um, from going any further, the suicide attempt. So the veteran lived and for the rest of the day, my colleagues came in to check on me and many of them were tearful, even though they hadn't even been in that room. And sort of out of an empathy reaction, which I took as empathy and kindness, said, you know, are you okay? You know, and really were impacted by this suicide attempt in the clinic. And I wanted to hide my face from them because I not only was okay, I felt amazing. I felt supercharged with adrenaline and that day was, it was, to me, it was a defining moment to me. It was a moment of, I was just tested in one of the core functions that I am called to support. And that one didn't get, didn't get away. Like that suicide, we stopped that suicide. Through the, the trust that my colleagues and I had in each other and our ability to intervene quickly, professionally, as a core team and unit, we stopped that from going any further. And so I felt amazing and I felt ashamed because I felt amazing. So then my next thought was, oh, that's what we do to war fighters is they come back from combat, which they are wired and trained to do. And we assume all kinds of things about what would traumatize them because it would traumatize us. And it just isn't something that, hi, sweetie. You need a hug. Okay. Really quick. Of All course. right. Hugs are necessary. It's what we need here. Okay. I so love it. I'm on a podcast. Sorry, but you know the rule. I know. I said you can come get a hug anytime you want. <laughs> anytime. Thanks. Of course. Of course. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, it's like COVID, you know, like yes. people think, oh, it's great. You're home with your kids all the time. That, that must be great. It's like, no, I'm having to reject my kids all the time because I'm working so hard that I just established a new rule 
that um, there's nothing more important than them. And I want them to know that. So I don't care if I'm on with the special forces unit. Like if they come in and they need a hug, I want my kids to know they can get it from me. So go ahead and let that be part of our podcast because I don't mind sharing that, that vulnerability right there. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She can come back too if she wants to. Yeah. Oh no. She, (laughs) I mean, you know, it's in balance. I want to have this conversation with you, Chris, but, but you know, that's, that's how we build connection in our kids is that we meet their needs when they have them. And it's hard to do this year. Yeah. But like, I'm trying, I'm trying. No my question. Best. No question. Um, but yeah, so this, this whole experience with the suicide attempt in the clinic was eye opening for me in terms of how often does it happen that a warfighter or a veteran service member comes to see us and we make all these assumptions about what traumatizes them because that's what would traumatize us. And that needs to stop. So what does it look like when warriors actually take control of their healing journey? This is going to be a huge area of focus. I've actually been in deep conversation recently with my friend Magnus Johnson. He's a former Green Beret, and he and his wife are um, co-founders of Mission 22. And so we've really been talking about how do we really work at that? And the thing that I've been thinking about is that, you know, post-traumatic stress or trauma, it takes away people's power. Warriors are people of action, and they need to feel like they can move with purpose on their values. Yet so much of what I see in how we set up the healthcare system and our model of providing care makes them feel powerless, outranked by their healers and won down. And they become uh, passive in their healing journey, which isn't good for them. So really understanding what their nature is that they need to be people of, of action and perhaps all of us do, you know, perhaps we need to look at how we um, use healthcare to promote healing for all of us, not just warfighters, but especially with warfighters promoting the message that post-traumatic stress, it's an injury, not a disorder. It's not invisible. We can see it with the right brain scan and we can address the biological injury with innovative care feels very important to me, as well as empowering warriors to do the work after that is, you know, the biological injury is addressed. So if you talk to some of the warriors in my network, they would say that I am supportive, but very challenging in the way that I support them. I am not somebody that comes to them with a sort of motherly, uh, warm and nurturing. That's just not how we connect. Um, I am much more likely, I'll try not to swear on your show, but um, to, to say, um, you know, I see the problems you're facing. I can help you understand it, but, but get up and fight. And I know that when I say mother, that that means in Marine, like person that I care about and I see your strength and get up and fight for this. I will fight next to you, but I will never work harder than you're willing to work for yourself. Um, And so really teaming up with Magnus and other veterans that I plan to do some videos with and do some messaging around what does it look like to really take control of your healing journey and walk point on your own healing journey is something I I intend to focus on next year, this year. Well, please keep us updated on that because we'd love to help promote that and maybe have another discussion about that as, as that gets rolled out. So thank you. Yeah, it's part of the stuff I hope to do with the Havoc Journal, actually, too. I'm hoping to do some work with them around some very practical uh, videos and columns. And so that might get folded into that messaging will certainly be part of what I promote. So how can society, both as individuals listening to this podcast and society in general, best support those who have sacrificed so much to protect us? You know, for whatever reason, warriors asked me to write the book that I wrote, Warrior. Um, There's probably a few reasons, but it's been such an honor to convey that message. And so, you know, nobody writes a book thinking they're going to get rich. (laughs) If they, if they do, it's like the the guy who, or the woman who plays basketball saying, I'm going to play for the NBA. Like, it's just not the way that people really make a lot of money these days, but it is the way to scale insights. 
So if people honestly can sow those lessons in their hearts from the book or the audio book, if they don't have time to read, but they have a long commute, uh, Scott Husing and I read the audio book. And so that would be another way to get it. But as an example, in the back of the book, there's a glossary of terms that we need to rethink. Um, and one of these terms that I focused on, for example, Chris, is uh, resilience. And this is uncomfortable. Like right now, what I'm about to say, uncomfortable. Um, because it's controversial because there are so many people who are doing resilience-focused programming. And this has become a part of people's slogans and logos and catchphrases and programs. And like I'm swimming upstream, but I have to say things like this because in those private conversations I have with warriors, they say, you know, actually we really kind of hate that term. Um, and so I asked them, what, what is that about? And this is what I learned. Uh, first, they think that it's used by people who don't get them sometimes to shame them into certain um, behaviors, to shame them into taking certain actions by people who don't really understand them and that who haven't earned their trust. So sometimes it's used that way. So the term has gotten a little bit contaminated in that sense. But then even when it's not, there's another level, which is super interesting to me. Um, so I guess I would say that conversation was about how all of us are resilient until we're not. And when there's a split inside of you and you look resilient on the outside, but you feel awful on the inside, then when people congratulate you for being so resilient, um, it creates even more of a split, makes you less likely to want to ask for support or help and creates barriers to getting the support you know that you need. So even a term like that, if we really rethink it, we can see how it creates like a, a sense of the wrong kind of pride, either like I'm more resilient than people I love like brothers and sisters, or I'm actually not as resilient as you think I am. And I look this way on the outside, but I feel awful on the inside. And that's a problem. So, you know, it's, I'm not one to like spend a lot of time splitting hairs, but the whole book is full of things they've shared that were revelations for me when I learned them. And that's just one example of many more um, in Warrior. We've been talking to Dr. Shauna Springer, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a closer look at yourself in the present. Your body has its own GPS system designed to help you follow your intuition, align your thoughts, and set your own course. Host Dealey is here to be your external guide to this discovery. Take a break, a mindful space to pause, and help bring forth the balance that your life deserves. Listen live for Mindful Space to Pause every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to The James Dentley Show and learn strategies for success in business and in life. Dr. James Dentley is a proven success coach who knows how to convert good into great. You'll find out from the achievers and leaders how they got to be the success stories that they are. And Dr. Dentley and his guests will give you the tools you need to follow in their footsteps. It's time to become the best version of you. Listen to The James Dentley Show, Fridays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. You have the power to be stronger, live fearlessly, and enjoy the benefits of a great life. Listen for Fearlessly Authentic with host Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started. With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, 
a finalist in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and a two-time world bikini champion. She's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with Dr. Shauna Springer. Shauna, before the break, we were talking about the power of connection. Connection is a two-way street, of course. It's obviously important for us to reach out to friends, family, coworkers, might be concerned about. But what do we need to do to show someone in the military to reach out for help when it may hurt their career advancement or even put them up for a discharge? Yeah, that's a hard one. You know, we have to create safe spaces with people that get it. Um, That's the bottom line. Unless we have truly safe places where people understand our capacity as humans to heal and get back on the line without negative consequences, it's really not going to happen in the way that everybody hopes. And no public messaging campaign will get us there. That's a very important thing for me to say, also controversial, I'm sure, but we have to set up the structures and the systems and bring in the kind of people that warriors trust and that will take them through a process of healing, and that there will be a transparent uh, ability for those people to face the challenges head on, work on them, address it, and get back on the line. And until we do that in a transparent way, we're still going to struggle with uh, people going into hiding when they're suffering. Um, Yeah, I mean, there is so much sort of shame and embarrassment, but then there's also the consequences. And when one person has a bad outcome, it travels like wildfire, that story. And then everybody else doesn't want to get the help that might be life-saving for them. Crucial to the process of reducing suicides is the successful reintegration of former military personnel into civilian life. As I mentioned earlier, that was the topic of your best-selling book that you co-authored, Beyond the Military, Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration. Why do you think that we've not done a very good job historically? And I'm talking about the military in general, and helping people transition from service to the private sector. Yeah, thanks for that, because the military does get kind of blamed. Um, It's all of us that are responsible for reintegrating our warriors um, after they've been in service. And um, I think, you know, we've uh, focused on what's what's safe and comfortable. Uh, We focus on people getting their next job. And we look at then military service members as coworkers. And that really misses the point. Military service members are not co-workers, they're family. And the identity that a warrior develops through their time in service creates unique vulnerabilities in transition. And the next job that a warrior has is really part of what needs to be supported, but there is a whole other level of cultural identity relational factors that nobody's addressing. So Jason Roncaroni and I wrote a book, it's about 400 pages, um, about the cultural, uh, psychological, identity-related, and relationship challenges associated with military transition. So instead of saying, you know, how do we help people get their next paid gig, we need to be asking different questions and supporting different insights. We need to ask ourselves, for example, How do I support someone who just lost connection with their entire family? Whose identity has taken a gut punch. And the longer you're in, sometimes the deeper the wound, the deeper the attachment wound. So military leaders that I've worked with often crash and burn 
in their transition out of the surface. And relationships that are rock solid are at risk for divorce. So helping people understand why it is a psychological minefield and how to confidently navigate it is a whole new kind of range of insights that Jason, Ron, Crony, and I wanted to bring to that picture to support military transition. And we've tried to get it out, Chris, and, you know, I've sort of like pushed against the engine and, um, you know, just like a lot of like individual people or, or two people coming against a big, you know, engine that's in place, uh, sometimes it feels hard to penetrate, but we wrote that book to get those insights out and to give people an empowered way to navigate their own transition, the most important things about their transition. You know, as you're talking there, all I can think about is the movie, The Hurt Locker, where uh-huh. all that warrior knew was to be in combat and defuse yeah. bombs. And yeah, you know. <laughs> just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that movie was not based on a patient that I saw, but I had a patient that had such a similar story. Um, and I write about it in Warrior, how he actually, um, his wife was due to have their second child. And he volunteered to go back into the war zone. And he told her that he had been called back to duty. So she finds this letter from him saying that he volunteered. And she's with this, you know, crying baby up at, you know, three in the morning, five in the morning, just awful by herself with two young kids. And this was a huge attachment wound for her. So when he comes back, she is cold to him. She is detached and he is trying to reach her and doesn't understand why she's detached. And so uh, he said to me in a very memorable session, it feels like she cut off my arms and stood there watching me bleed out. So the work for him was to embrace a different kind of courage, which he told me he'd rather, he'd rather walk into an ambush in a firefight than tell his wife how much he loves her and needs her. Right. So it's a different courage than we're talking about for a physical firefight. Um, And warriors dread this kind of courage. And I help them muster the courage and understand the rationale for taking their armor off with those they love and that being their their way of operating. And so it was a good outcome. It was like a beautiful outcome that I'll always remember when he shared, she shared, they cried. He came back, his face was changed. I mean, they just, you know, no more fantasies of killing people. Uh, it just was very, very different after that, um, that fox in their collective gut was revealed. Let's pivot here for a moment if we could. You're not just concerned about those who serve us in the military. You've also been focused on the stresses affecting first responders. Obviously, this past year, the use of force by police has been in the spotlight more than ever before. EMTs, firefighters, nurses, doctors who may have dealt with you know, maybe one or two deaths you know, over the course of a month or two are now seeing maybe dozens of people yeah. die due to COVID. That emotional toll obviously can be crushing. Let's start with the first one, the use of force. You've talked about the moral crisis that creates for officers. Can you dive into that topic for us, please? Yeah. So uh, what I'm told by those that I walk with and support who trust me is that being asked to use force against fellow citizens violates a moral code for some of them. So their code to serve, defend, protect our citizens brings some very interesting moral dilemmas to the forefront when they're asked to potentially use force against fellow citizens. It's not a warrior role. It's a different call to service when somebody is in the police force. And those who are aligned with that code will struggle. Now, I'm not making an argument here, Chris, to be clear, for not using uh, all available resources to keep the peace. That's not what this is about. Um, I do think that if we used available resources, police officers and such, to potentially use force on fellow citizens, then I do think we have a moral imperative to understand the moral impact of that for some of those who do that and to support that well if we're asking them to do it. And what are the long-term emotional and behavioral health issues our country will face among first responders and frontline medical personnel because of COVID-19? And how should our elected officials go about addressing them? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, but, you know, off the top of my head, I would say this. 
Those on the front lines of healthcare are wired like warriors in certain ways. They're good at staying calm during chaotic uh, times and in chaotic environments. They are good at um, high performance functions when most of us would be overwhelmed. They're good at uh, doing things most of us can't do. You know, they deal in the realm of life and death. So they are used to and trained for and wired to expect, you know, three or four deaths every so often if you're like an ER doc. What nobody is prepared for, no human, no matter how strong, is 30 or 40 deaths a week. For their ER, where they save lives to be turned into a place where they chronically and pervasively feel helpless to stop people from dying en masse at numbers that are higher than we're seeing in a combat war zone. And so that is a, a, a huge trauma that's going to have very long lasting impact. And I didn't write Warrior knowing that COVID would happen. It was, you know, written well before that. But so much of what I unpack in my book has direct implications for other people like ER docs, healthcare workers, first responders that have been on the front lines of the battle of COVID. The trauma is similar in many ways, and the path to healing is going to be very similar. And so again, you know, it's people say don't write a book for more than one population. I actually did write a book for warriors and first responders to better understand where their struggles are and develop uh, perspective and insight on those struggles. I wrote it for people that love them to understand how their, their warriors, their first responders um, are affected. I wrote it for healthcare decision makers to make better policy decisions and to really understand what's at the root of pain. And that things like investing in public messaging and certain apps and technology, it's not going to land for the people you're serving if that's not their way of navigating connection. You're also concerned about our National Guard personnel. Yeah. You've noted that even though they've been through basic training and even some specialized training, they're getting called up to perform duties that they're not used to performing. That yep. even includes young people who are being retasked to casualty affairs, which means that they may be going to homes and helping to identify people who have died of COVID. What more needs to be done to protect their mental health and prevent suicides to that important group? Yeah, that came out of conversations that I had in a podcast interview I did with uh, Matt Kleiman, who's now uh, just been promoted to Rear Admiral and Assistant uh, Deputy Surgeon, um, what is it, Surgeon General. And he um, was the former head of the National Guard. And so we had a conversation about how National Guard men and women were being detailed to, for example, knock on doors for people that hadn't shown up that were missing and identify bodies of people that died by COVID, um, that died by suicide, that have died by other natural causes, but nobody could get to them. And they're retasked to that because there's a need, but there's no specialized training and there's a dramatic positive uh, trauma impact excuse me, trauma impact from doing that kind of work, casualty affairs and things that they are asked to do. And so again, I'm not saying that we don't use our warriors as um, defenders, protectors, resources in the scope of their jobs, but that we have a moral imperative to address the trauma that this raises. So one of the conversations I've been in lately is with a major insurance company who wants to team up with Stella, my organization, and offer a biological treatment for the biological injury caused by um, this kind of trauma exposure. And this has a precedent. It's, you know, the nurses, the flight nurses in combat zones get this treatment. It's called Steli ganglion block. It's an injection in the neck that uh, seems to restore the fight or flight system to a sense of calm. And so we would like to have conversations about how we can support the National Guard in terms of the trauma impact of this year um, and all that they've been exposed to because of COVID. You know, and staying on the topic of the pandemic, you've said because of COVID, we're all sort of in our own foxholes. Yeah. Assume, assuming the vaccine is going to help life get back to some semblance of normality, you know, hopefully God willing sometime in the second half of this year, how do we spend the rest of our time in, those, in our foxholes as mentally healthy as possible? And what do we start to do in the next few months to prepare for that day we get to emerge from that foxhole? Yeah, somebody else, not me, said something to the effect of this disease divides and conquers. And I thought that was really smart. 
And to me, that applied to how I've been thinking about it in terms of being in our own foxholes. And I know the danger of that in terms of mental warfare. Um, it's going to be a slow process. It's going to have to be intentional. And so really thinking about what is under our control, what is not under our control. You can literally draw a line down a sheet of paper and do a thought exercise. What is under my control? What is not? Um, but also I think meaning anchors us in times of chaos and helplessness. So thinking about the sacred values that we um, are driven by is critical. Thinking about how do we move on those values, even right now, while we're still relatively socially isolated, so that we keep connected to those values and we keep connected to people in intentional ways so that it won't be such a transition, a jarring transition. But it's going to take a while, Chris. I mean, it's been such a bizarre thing that to come out of this and feel normal again will certainly be a process and will require us to, uh, frankly, rebuild trust with each other as well. You've also said that it's very important that things are not all doom and gloom. That we need to have optimism about our own well-being, our communities, and country. Could you share some reasons and maybe more importantly, ways we can be more op optimistic about that path forward? I am optimistic because what I know is that with the right insights and support, we're capable of healing. We're capable of accomplishing many things. And I also think historically, when we hit a really deep valley in our society, often we come out of that stronger than before. So it's in these valleys where I think we see things in a different light and people develop the motivation to shift the paradigms that they've never even noticed. Um, they start to look at things in a different light. And so there's this potential for a paradigm shift in terms of our whole healthcare model that I'd love to help advance. Because there are, I've written a manifesto of 10 ways that our healthcare system really needs to adopt uh, new fundamental assumptions to better serve those who are suffering. Um, and I think if we don't address these, we're going to be in real trouble because there'll be a tidal wave of need coming out of this year. But there are ways we can get ahead of this if we have the right insights and the right support. You know, it's interesting you say that. I did some, just some loose research on Google, just looking for generic uh, articles on mental health recently. Uh -huh. And if you look back 18 months ago, you know, you'd see maybe a half a dozen or a dozen a day over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. Now you're literally seeing dozens per day come mm -hmm. out on various mental health, whether it be for children, teens, yeah. suicide prevention, seniors, technology, as you mentioned. And you talked about the, the tidal wave. You know, I've been using the word tsunami, you know, thinking there's going to be this major mental health tsunami oh, in the second okay. half of the, the tail end of this. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's why it's important to have folks like you out there doing the work that you're doing, getting your message out there, sharing with our listeners, sharing with our communities, um, because we're all in this together. And yeah. that's what has to be realized, whether you're a veteran, active duty, first responder, frontline worker, grandma, grandpa, whatever, we're all going through the same stuff together and we've, we'll get through it together. Yeah, and because we're all going through it together and it's impacting all of us at a personal level, there's suddenly this attention and will to move on things. You know, like, hey, maybe it's okay to get therapy and maybe getting it through telehealth is a, you know, maybe a helpful way to do it for some people. They can fit it right into their lives now. And so there are these potentials for paradigm shifts, um, but I think there needs to be way more um, fundamental changes in how we view healthcare, you know, seeing it as a team sport and really one mission. The work I do is about fusing biological, psychological, and mind-body practice in a way that's strategically sequenced to get people the best outcomes when they're suffering from trauma. And so other things like this, we need to be, we need to innovate like our lives depend on it because they do. You know, you talked about people saying it's okay to get therapy now. That's one of the biggest things or, or themes I've seen through all this recently is, you know, re reducing that stigma or kicking the stigma. Um, I saw a commercial recently, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, he and one of their, their linebackers, they have a campaign called kicking the stigma. And it's a full on internet and TV uh, campaign saying, look, we've all got different issues. We're all facing it. Here's the professional athlete talking about it. Um, you know, Michael Phelps has come out talking about it. And so when you see folks like that out there, um, you know, it's okay. Yeah, that's leadership. That's people coming out with that different kind of courage, taking off their armor 
and their position and their rank and saying, you know what, I want to integrate here and show that I'm sometimes not okay. Um, and that's, that's what we need. We need to hit a tipping point in awareness around some of that um, example. We're getting there. We're definitely getting there. So we have just a few minutes left. Doc, I've asked this question of several recent guests. I think it's yeah. especially important as you champion the power of connection. Between the COVID-19 pandemic and the political divisions we're experiencing in America right now, many people have expressed feelings of really just being powerless and a lack of control. What are some things that people can do this year in 2021 to feel more empowered, more in control of their lives, and hopefully ultimately feel better about themselves? It's the people that we would die for and the values we hold sacred that give us a sense of life being worth it. And so our control and our power comes from articulating those things for ourselves and moving on them regardless. You can sit there and, you know, think about it in the abstract. What do I really value? But if you look at the things that you've really been fueled to do in the past, you can develop insights about what your purpose is. And then regardless of the situation, you can find ways to meet the need with that purpose. And doing that now, not waiting. I mean, you and I, before this call, we were talking for a few minutes about how chuckling about how we both thought, oh, two weeks, four weeks, you know, we'll be through this, right? Um, this is, this is as I wrote in a recent CNN article on how we heal this divided nation, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we really need to rebuild trust with each other. It's going to be a slow process and it requires insights, the right kind of insights and intention from all of us. But I feel hopeful that we can do it um, if we move with intention in that direction. Well, people like you at the helm, we will definitely do it. Thank Dr. you, Springer. Chris. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.